0: norm that creates conflicts is a perversion instead of is what the rule is supposed to do, namely to help us avoid conflicts. Only private or exclusive property makes it possible that all otherwise unavoidable conflicts can be avoided. A norm that would generate conflict, that creates conflicts, is contrary to the very purpose of the norm or a rule. The state is not only an institution that produces inferior goods, bad goods, low quality goods, um, but it actually produces bads. That is to say, goods that are not really goods at all, what we call bads. The state is an agency that exercises a territorial monopoly of ultimate decision making. If you can decide who is right and wrong in every case, even in cases involving yourself, then you will provoke and cause conflicts. And then, of course, decide these conflicts in your own favor. States will substitute legislation for law. They make the law. Make laws and say, it is alright if I hit you like on the head sometimes. The norm that creates conflicts is a perversion. If you can decide who's right and wrong in every case in the cases involving yourself, then you will provoke and cause conflicts.
1: Oh, I cut it off a little early there. I think he just did a little talking, but it is what it is. Sorry guys. Uh hey, uh this is uh no uh, this is Jose Galison. You're watching No Way Jose. A uh, credit uh for these this is on these uh these Democracy of the God That Failed Live Ring episodes. I'm doing uh, you know, just there's a handful of a uh, Hoppa synth uh, music that I've found on the Romero Synth YouTube channel. I don't know if he has it on other platforms, but uh I even got him to say it was cool, which uh I told him, is like I don't believe in IP be anyways, but you know, just had a courtesy. If you don't like it, I'll stop. But I'm gonna do it in the meantime. And he replied and said, "Go for it, man." So he he seems pretty dope. Uh, definitely go check out his channel. Find more stuff like that. Especially the Hopa stuff is pretty dope. He has other stuff. There's one that's like a Kinsella one, which is actually pretty sick. Uh, but yeah, definitely go check him out. Uh, tell him I sent you. You know, do in the comments. Uh, but yeah, he he's he's definitely got some good stuff over there. So check that out. Um, yeah, uh, this is the No Way Jose show, uh, I think I already said all that shit, my guest today is Toad, uh, it, uh we're, like I said, we're in Democracy of the God that Failed stuff, um, I do want to let you guys know, if you're watching this on December 1st, you are catching the live stream, uh, if you are not, uh, you are catching it later, uh, or you're a patron, um, and, it, the whole point I'm getting at is what happens after these is I take them down and roughly about a week or so later I put them back up. Uh, make them public. So immediately after the live stream comes down. So it's a public live stream. Uh, I think I may change that soon. So, you know, patrons out, out there, uh, I'm kind of basically waiting until I get a few more because I do like the live stream aspect, but it doesn't really make sense for all of them. I'm still going to do like some things like my Four Pony Boys series. I'm still going to do them live. Obviously, if I cover something topical, I'm not going to hold off like a week. I normally don't do things that are too entirely topical, so shouldn't be an issue. Uh, but in the few, the occasions that I do, yeah, it will, but you know, even then I'll try to give you guys some sort of perks. If you're patrons, uh, the lowest level being two bucks, and that will give you at the base level, at the very least, it'll give you access to the shit in the meantime. Uh, so while it's behind the paywall, like, uh, right now, like I said, it would be, uh, you'd have access in the time between the public live stream. And when it goes up publicly again, uh, later, obviously you won't be the public live stream. It'll be a private live stream for only my patrons. So if you want to do that, get in on it. Only two bucks. Um, yeah, so but uh, like I said, uh, they're differing levels. The highest level is twenty bucks. Twenty bucks from my sponsors. My sponsors are Mikel Thorpe of the Expat Money Show. I also have Jeremy, who uh, who has an Etsy store at etsycom shop Liberty. You also can follow him on Twitter at Jeremy Rhymes. And then I also have Toad, my guest of Tower Power, which I cannot tell you. I've never been more psyched for a Tower Power episode uh i mean they want this is a little bit topical thing so if you're watching this when it's, when it's out this is out like later when it's public uh you know it maybe it won't be, be hitting as hard but on the the positive side you'll be able to go ahead and watch that episode i'm referring to because i am excited there's a bunch of crazy yay stuff and that's our uh, offensive comedy show which we sometimes kind of do a little political just because of the fact but it's kind of hard for us to avoid it most time it's just dick joke shit like that but you know, uh, if that's not your thing, don't go. If you're not trying to be a, if you, if you are easily offended, do not watch the show. If you like offensive comedy, we're your guys. Uh, but yeah, me and Toad, some of the co-hosts, or we have a few more, you know, we have Clint, we have, uh, Clint Russell, we have, uh, Reed Coverdale, Top Lobster, Fat Dave, uh, definitely go check that out. And also follow uh, Toad at TPH underscore Toad. And that's patreon.com. Just know it. a 2020. If I didn't say that already, I forget if I did uh also uh, toplops.com. go get some jose, no way jose merch for sure uh definitely you can you can also get tower power merch like i mentioned that show before just a moment ago you also have uh you know you can get a bunch of other shows like you know basically all the other guys that i mentioned uh, there that had shows like reed and clint their merch is up there uh highly suggest he also has stuff that's not podcast merch so uh you know, I highly suggest toplobs.com you so to they check out for 10 percent off uh but yeah let's go ahead and get in here and get toad what's up man That's right. Top lobster tower power hour merch right here. Yeah. Hell yeah, buddy. I'm wearing top lobster merch right now too, but I don't have the camera. What it's the Scott Horton one. Oh, Uh, it does tanks. All right. Yeah, yep, yep. I I I don't know. know. I need to figure out a way to be able to, you know, show off the merch more, figure maybe more aerial view. I need to get a higher right now my my laptops and a stack of books, but I just need to make a higher stack of books. Yeah. I guess I don't know. Show
2: off the merch by yeah. which you mean your muscles. Hell
1: yeah, dog. Yeah. Uh Yeah, dude. Uh I'm. Well, I really cannot tell you how excited I am for Tower Power this coming episode, and it's uh, a. <laughs> I
2: don't even know what it's gonna be, man. It's episode. Yeah, dude, it's 100. gonna be <laughs> just
1: nothing but yay. There was so much in
0: there.
1: <laughs> <laughs> oh, so that's what you're talking about. Yeah. No. Oh, yes. The content. I mean, we're trying to figure out some cool guests. We'll figure out something cool. I don't know what we got. We have a couple different ideas in mind. We'll figure it out. Hey, Larry. Holy Larry. Whoa. Whoa, man. 50 bucks. Made you look. I love oh, it when shit. you make me look. It's fucking dope, dude. Appreciate you showing up. Uh, yeah, dude. That's, that's fucking, that's super nice of you. Uh, yeah. But yeah, no, I uh, appreciate you, Larry. Appreciate all uh, people who show up and, you know, support. Uh, like I said, patron, uh, for those interested in that. Um, yeah. But yeah, dude, I am. Yeah. I'm excited. But I guess yeah, you now, go
2: ahead. I, I like that uh, hop away. Like you said, it was one of the least good ones. The one that we just had uh, the intro yeah. here. That like when it picks up, I'm like, hell yeah! yeah. Like, it
1: does. It builds. Gets like, going. Right. Yeah. That
2: one quote. I was just laughing my ass <laughs> off of that. The state does not produce goods. It only produces bads.
1: <laughs> <laughs> like it's almost childish. It's funny. Yeah, <laughs> uh, it's my type of humor. Yeah, but uh, today we're uh, we're we're doing the live reading. Um, so we're covering. Um, we're covering the second half of chapter two on monar- monarchy. That's a weird way to pronounce it. Monarchy, democracy, and the idea of natural order. So we'll monarchy. be uh we'll be finishing off this chapter today and beginning chapter three on the next one. Yeah. Which... I, I I will just say quickly because I was so out
2: of it on the uh, the previous episode, and I think I probably corrected myself, but what Hoppe was talking about with the the Bretton Woods agreement, which is the last remnants of the gold standard going away in the US in 1971, when they got rid of the gold exchange, which was uh, – people weren't allowed to own gold anymore, but countries were allowed to exchange the U.S. dollar for gold still. And they were becoming more and more incentivized to do so because the government was printing more and more dollars and devaluing the dollar more and more. So the U.S. was obviously afraid that there was going to be a run of these countries being like, well, we don't want this dollar anymore. We want gold because it's going to retain its value more. They were worried there was going to be this big run on the gold reserves. They didn't have enough gold anyway to back it at that point. So they're like, we can't do that. So they just cut it off basically. Like, well, you can no longer exchange it for gold anymore. So that's essentially what happened.
1: Yeah. Well, that's nice. <laughs> <laughs> well, let's go yeah. ahead and get into it, man. Let's uh, get autistic. <laughs> yeah, I'll, I'll start off. All right, We uh we, we already covered the first half. So uh, if you're just jumping in, maybe it'll be a little jarring jumping in right where we're at. But, you know. What the hell are you doing if you're starting on part six? That's kind of a weird move. So. <laughs> yeah, I, I, don't, I don't remember exactly where we stopped either. But all right. Yeah, I, I have the spot. We're on page 61. Oh, it was where, at the I'm end on... of the
2: dejuvenal quote. Yes. Think, yep, yep, yep. Yeah.
1: All right. To be sure, the monopolization of law administration led to higher prices and or lower product quality than those that would have prevailed under competitive conditions. And in the course of time, kings employ their monopoly increasingly to their own advantage. For instance, in the course of time, kings had increasingly employed their monopoly of law and order for a perversion of the idea of punishment. The primary objective of punishment originally had been restitution and compensation of the victim of a rights violation by the offender. Under Monaco rule, the objective of punishment had increasingly shifted to compensating the king instead. However, while this practice implied an expansion of government power... It did not involve any redistribution of wealth and income within civil society, nor did it imply that the king himself was exempt from the standard provisions of private law. Private law was still supreme. And indeed, as late as the beginning of the 20th century, A.V. Dicey uh, could still maintain that for Great Britain, for instance, legislative law, public law, as distinct from pre-existing law, private law did not exist the law governing the relationships between private citizens was still considered fixed and immutable and government agents in their relationship with private citizens were regarded as bound by the same laws as any private citizen That's a pretty good little paragraph there you yeah thoughts? so
2: um well so he he has kind of this theme going on that he kind of mentions a lot he, he kind of makes sure to throw in there like hey like monarchy you know was still not like the best thing like there were still you know in some cases, there was an expansion of state power and whatever, but it was just minimal compared to when he's going to you know, contrast it to uh, democracy in a second. It was more minimal uh, when compared to that. And I, I mean, I guess that's kind of the main point there. He's basically yeah. saying that they were uh, under uh, the monarchy. They were still more adherent to like a private law type of thing and more um, adherent to, I guess, uh, maintaining property rights.
1: Yeah, and the difference being, instead of taking your money through the legal system and uh, just redistributing it to everyone, it was just going to one person, the king. So it's right. not obviously not ideal. It'd be better if it was simply for the purposes of re- uh, restitution for making right whatever you know wrong you did, whatever mm. uh, property you took from someone else or destroyed or what have you. Yeah. Uh, but in in this situation, it's still you're still kind of getting a little bit fucked there, although. Uh, it seems to be he's implying you, there'd still be some restitution to some degree, yeah. Uh, you know, but like uh, a little bit less so than the ideal, and that it wouldn't, wouldn't right. be the the prime uh, objective. And right. it's kind so. of almost a sliding scale. The closer it gets to a democracy, the mm. less it's about restitution, and the more it's about exactly. punishment.
2: So exactly. So yeah, in the monarchy, like I think there was still yeah some form of restitution there and paying the uh, damaged party, uh, but the king was taking some for himself. Uh, so in a way, it was, like, somewhat considered to be a crime against the state, but not really exactly. But then in the public uh, form of government, the democracy, it's pretty much when you uh, commit a criminal crime, it's entirely considered to be a crime of the state. And I think, like, really even rarely does the uh, the victim even, like, really get any sort of uh, ample restitution, I would say. And it's all focused on, like, retribution instead. And we need to punish this person, you know? Yeah.
1: In striking contrast, under democracy, with the exercise of power shrouded in anonymity, presidents and parliaments quickly came to rise above the law. They became not only judges, but legislators, the creator of new law. Today, notes juvenel we are used, used to having our rights modified by the sovereign decisions of legislators. A landlord no longer feels surprised at being compelled to keep a tenant. An employer is no less used to having to raise the wages of his employees in virtue to degrees of power. Nowadays, it's understood their subjective rights are precarious and at the good pleasure of authority. That's actually pretty little you got anything to add to that? Because that's actually – while it was a short little passage, there's a lot in there.
2: Yeah, I mean he's he's essentially saying that uh, because of the form of government that we're under, we've just become used to uh, laws existing that just violate – our property rights. And we don't even really think anything of it.
1: Yeah. Like, and, it, and,
2: and, yeah anyway. His example, the landlord is forced to like take on a tenant that the landlord might otherwise not want to take on if they were able to voluntarily decide on that.
1: Yeah. Which like, I guess the point would be, he would say in contrast with like the Monarch, it'd be like the point he was kind of getting at is yes. Like whenever there's some criminal or something, uh, it's a, it wouldn't be so much the objective restitution as it would be, punishment and maybe and kind of enriching the uh the monarch or what have you Uh, yeah enriching Uh, the state yeah because maybe somebody
2: yeah commits something like that like maybe they should be punished but i think yeah first yeah like restitution would be the first thing you should focus on and then but the point
1: the point he's kind of getting at i think with his private law point that he was kind of saying that he sort of still somewhat exists in it there is still a slight perversion of of of, uh, a proper private law but it's not to the degree to where the person who did nothing wrong is necessarily being penalized uh, directly exactly. at least yeah so like i guess you could make the case you're being indirectly penalized when you aren't mm-hmm. getting like a full restitution but yeah. i would even say in that case it's likely they were probably getting a full restitution but then pro- or or something close and then but then the monarch was probably mm-hmm. skimming off the top yeah, you know, well, getting it, a little yeah. bit extra. You
2: know, in the system we have now, the uh, victim through taxes is already being forced to pay for the court system that will possibly wind up not even making them whole anyway. So
1: it gets yeah pretty perverted. In a development uh, similar to dem- democratization of money, the substitution of government paper money for private commodity money and the resulting inflation and increased financial uncertainty the de- democratisation of law and law administration has led to a steadily growing flood of legislation so substitution mm-hmm. of government money for private com- commodity money I don't know if you, does that read weird to you is substitution of government paper money for private commodity money so he's saying
2: that uh, the government is like replacing hard money with their own fiat money basically
1: yeah, I just uh, – the way – I don't know. Maybe I'm retarded, but the way I'm reading that is like I'm reading it like the inverse, but I know what he means. He's yeah, the private – like the private's the good thing. <laughs> like, right, right. Uh, but yeah, um, I don't know. For me, I, and maybe it's, I'm, just, it's, I'm It's his good.
2: German uh, primary yeah. language uh, going yeah. on there, I, I think, but I, I get what he's
1: saying. Yeah. Maybe I'm just retarded and not understanding words correctly. I don't know. Um, I think it's pr- still a correct way of saying it in English. It? <laughs> yeah. Presently, the number – maybe I'm the retard here. <laughs> <laughs> we both are. Yeah, and I speak English. It's my primary language. So, mm. uh, Presently, the number of legislative acts and regulation passed by parliaments in the course of a single year is in the tens of thousands, filling hundreds of thousands of pages, affecting all aspects of civil and commercial life, and resulting in a steady depreciation of all law and heightened legal uncertainty. As a typical example, the 1994 edition of the Code of Federal Regulations, the annual compendium of all U.S. federal government regulations currently in effect, consists of a total of 201 books, occupying about 26 feet of library shelf space. The code's index alone is 754 pages. And by the way, this book's probably at least a decade old, so keep, bear that in mind. Yeah. Um, I don't know when it was written. I'm, I could look. I don't remember exactly. Um the code contains regulations concerning the production and distribution of almost everything imaginable from celery, mushrooms, watermelons, watch bands, the labeling of incandescent light bulbs, hosiery, parachute jumping, iron and steel manufacturing, sexual offenses on college campuses, to the cooking of onion rings made out of diced onions, revealing the most totalitarian power of a democratic government. Yeah, I don't know so, if there's really a whole lot of commentary there. I mean, if you, you got some, but it just, um, it's definitely making the point of just kind of how these things grow.
2: We yeah, don't. so this book is uh, if you were talking about when this book was written, I think it was like two thousand something 2000, like that, that two thousand one, right. something around yeah, like so there. So
1: he said he's, at least a decade, but right.
2: Yeah, so he's, he's talking true. about yeah, the federal, the code of federal regulations, what the size was in ninety four, and absolutely it has grown, yeah, even more since then. But oh, the point sure. is that there are so many laws on the books that like nobody could possibly, no single person could ever know like what is
1: even in there. Like nobody yeah, technically, knows. everyone breaks what yeah. like multiple felonies a day. <laughs> um, yeah, I, I think, Something um, ridiculous. according
2: to, um, Mike Chase, I think is his name, the guy that wrote that, uh, book about all the, it's like how to be a federal criminal where he like lists all these absolutely outrageous yeah. federal laws that nobody would ever know about yeah. or think that they're violating
1: a law when they do this. How to, how to be a federal criminal exists. <laughs> yeah. yeah I, I have the
2: book. Yeah. I've read it. It's a, it's yeah. a fun read. It's,
1: it's, uh, yeah. it's
2: yeah, it will outrage you, but it's fun and funny at the same time. But yeah, yeah like there are so many laws that nobody can possibly know that and yeah so he says that it's an average of three i think federal offenses or three felonies on average are committed daily by the average citizen and we're not the average citizens here um yeah, yeah so and it yeah there are just so many laws that nobody can uh possibly know if they're breaking a the law or not which is kind of ridiculous because when you think of what should a law be and if it was if the laws are actually just encompassing protecting private property, you would kind of know that anyway. Like it's pretty obvious to somebody, Hey, I'm damaging somebody's property right now. I'm vandalizing or I'm harming this individual. I'm injuring them. Like really those should be the only laws. And when it gets beyond that and it gets to the point where you don't even know if you're breaking a law when you're just like walking down the street or something, it's so outrageous. It's ridiculous. And it obviously has nothing to do with yeah, what is moral or anything like that. And then the other thing that he did here is he just uh, compared uh, the growth of the law to uh, the uh, inflation here. So that's you know, a little yeah. bit interesting. It's just an, an absurd expansion of it.
1: Yeah. Uh, compared to the average citizen, I break way more laws and most of the time intentionally. So, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. but uh, no, it is silly. Cause it is like, and then you wonder why uh, anytime anyone becomes an enemy of the state, it becomes immediately easy to hammer them in any which way they want, because they have a million tools in their toolbox because, you know, um, I know one of the points that was in, I believe it was an Aggress primer with Konkin, uh, he makes the point of, cause he's kind of getting the point of like, why are you even really going out of your way? Cause a lot of people are really make a point to always follow the law. And it's like, like he, he he's not advocating you hurt people and he's also not advocating you get in trouble with the state uh, necessarily. It's more of a cost risk uh, or, or uh, uh, a, a risk benefit kind of a, uh, uh, you know, analysis type thing. And you know the idea being like, uh, you know, it, he made the point in there that uh, like a, a company can set their prices to like he he like literally pointed out a specific law that said mm-hmm. if you pre- like raise your prices too high, price gouging, uh, mm-hmm. you know, a lot of people call it, then that that's illegal in a lot of ways, and you can get in this blah 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 blah. And mm-hmm. then he also pointed out if you put your your prices too low, you can get you that's illegal. It, it, it's a yeah. it's like. there's no winning so it's like if anything it's more just a matter of just trying to have a sober look at things uh you know seeing what can you what do you need to do what do you have to stand to benefit from this given action what is the possible risk and move forward with that you know kind of knowledge as opposed to oh my god i'm gonna break a law because if you're living by that standard you're you're it's a fucking mess so yeah yeah um All Indicators of present orientalness. The phenomenon of social time preference is somewhat more elusive than that of expropriation and exploitation, and it is more complicated to identify suitable indicators of present orientation. Moreover, some indicators are less direct, softer than that of exploitation, but all of them point in the same direction and together provide as clear an illustration of the second theoretical prediction, that democratic rule also promotes short-sightedness within civil society. The most direct – it's not really anything to say there unless you have some. The most direct indicator of social time preference is the rate of interest. The interest rate is the ratio of the valuation of present goods as compared to future goods. More specifically, it indicates the premium at which present money is traded against future money. A high interest rate implies more present-orientedness, and a low rate of interest implies more future-orientation. Under normal conditions, that is under the assumption of increasing standards of living and real money incomes, the interest rate can be expected to fall and ultimately approach yet never quite reach zero, for with rising real incomes, the marginal utility of present money falls relative to that of future money, and hence, under the ceteris paribus assumption of a given time preference schedule, the interest rate must fall. Consequently, savings and investment will increase, future real incomes will still be higher, and so on. All right, this is where you come in handy because this is a lot especially if you're a normal person if you're just getting into this uh, and you're a prime autist so I think you probably can break this down for people to be able to understand a little better I also want to make a note for people when they're trying to understand this also I think you need to keep in mind the distinction when you're reading this between um, you know what the interest rate should be in the given society and what the interest rate is set by you know the Fed or what have you because uh, you know right. but go on
2: Well, yeah. I mean, the interest rate is essentially the price of money. So as he's saying here, it is uh, how people value uh, money right now as opposed to that money uh, in the future. Uh, So typically, yeah, the interest rate is going to be determined by all of the – like if you have a free market, which is the scenario that you want, the interest rate will be determined by all of the – people acting in that market and yeah. like that will determine what the and, price and it will,
1: and his point is that he was saying in a, in a proper society, is. it will, the interest rate will drop over time uh, as you become, I believe that's how I'm reading it. And that's why I wanted to make the distinction between what the right. Fed sets because mm-hmm. we, in a lot, we've had periods where we've had very low interest rates and people are like, Oh, that's great. And it's like, yeah, but is that an artificially low one? <laughs> like, yeah. Because this might cause a fucking problem. Right. right so, yeah.
2: yeah. So it would be a good thing if there was like the, production, uh, if that had actually taken place uh, beforehand, uh, it's a
1: naturally occurring phenomenon basically. Yeah.
2: Right. So in in the case of, uh, yeah, the government, the fed interfering and setting it, as you said, artificially low. Uh, so the interest rate should actually be a lot higher than it is right now, uh, to actually like correct for what the state of the economy actually is, but instead they keep it artificially low the whole time. And People think that there's a boom there because it is low. Uh, so people are, are going to spend more and, bar, uh, you know, they're going to borrow more in that scenario because uh, they can borrow more, you know, at a much lower interest rate, obviously not have to pay as much back. But the issue is that savings has not been built up uh, behind it. So right now they should actually be being incentivized to save for and you need higher interest rates for that to happen. Uh, but that is not actually happening right now. So what you what you have is a bunch of money has been created, and there hasn't actually been like the wealth production behind it to back it up that should actually have happened to create that uh, interest rate, that lower interest rate.
1: Exactly. If that makes yeah. sense. Yeah. Yeah. You put that perfectly. I think that I think, I think it's about as good as we can get it without spending a whole episode trying to dumb it down. I yeah. mean, there are some concepts that, like uh, you know, if if you're just now stumbling on my channel and you just deciding to get this, or you haven't read much libertarian literature this may be or economic literature this may be a little bit of a sloth for you but we're trying our best to break it down but we can't spend the whole episode on this one paragraph so uh, it is what it is you know Uh, right feel free to message toad on twitter if you have more questions (laughs) right so essentially the interest rate should only
2: become lower like once you've had enough of that uh savings behind it that Uh, you know, a bank essentially is going to be saying, oh, we have enough money now that we need to uh, incentivize uh, people to borrow more, but we need to lend it out because we have more on stock. But what's happening is that money is being created essentially artificially right now where in like a free market scenario, that money would only be getting uh, saved up like that in the banks if there had been a bunch of production behind and wealth actually being created so that money was actually or, you know, there was actually wealth behind it. Yeah.
1: Yeah. All right. In fact, a tendency toward falling interest rates characterized mankind's supersecular secular trend of development. Minimum interest rates on normal safe loans were around 16 percent at the beginning of Greek financial history in the 6th century B.C. and fell to 6 percent during the Hellenistic period. In Rome, minimum interest rates fell from more than 8 percent during the earliest period of the Republic to 4 percent during the first century of the Empire. In 13th century er, er, uh, Europe, the lowest interest rates on safe loans were 8%. In the 14th century, they came down to about 5%. In the 15th century, they fell to 4%. In the 17th century, they went down to 3%. And at the end of the 19th century, minimum interest rates had further declined to less than 2.5%. I uh, mean, we kind of already broke this down a lot. If you want to add any, feel free. Um, uh, he's just talking
2: about there being a tendency uh, for yeah. more of a free market scenario, which this is before uh, like the monarchies were basically ousted in, you know, had the democracies coming in place of them. He's talking about before that the interest rates were uh, overall
1: uh, falling. Yeah, it's and, not so much and, a monarchy point because he did point out the, the yeah. Rome like the republic. It's more, oh, yeah, right. If yeah, anything, yeah. it would be more the point of like, now we're in a situation where we have fiat money and they have much more manipulation, sure. ability to manipulate the uh, currency and such, uh, whereas they didn't have, and that was actually why a lot of those uh, republics, like, uh, I don't know, I forgot my point, but yeah, my point being is it's not so much the monarchy, although, uh, yeah. although democracies have a higher tendency of doing it i think he made a point earlier in the book that right. even during those periods when you had th- things like rome where they had republics and such they mm-hmm. weren't able to do it to such a degree because the world the rest of the world hadn't adopted such a system and so it would like it yeah. essentially hampered their ability to manipulate the currency as much but now we're in a system where pretty much the entire world is under some sort of fiat system um you know it, right. pretty much that is the case aside from maybe like some you know third world tribal type shit or something so, the, yeah, the, the, there is no other, like, groups that are doing something closer to the proper thing that's going to really, you know, uh, fuck things up, you know, if that makes sense. Um, yeah. All right. This trend was by no means smooth. It was frequently interrupted by periods, sometimes as long as centuries, of rising interest rates. However, such periods were associated with major wars and revolutions, such as the Hundred Years' War during the 14th century, the wars of religion from the late 16th to the early 17th century, the American and French revolutions, and the Napoleonic Wars from the late 18th to the early 19th century, and the two world wars in the 20th century. Furthermore, whereas high or rising minimum interest rates indicated periods of generally low or declining living uh, standards, I'm tongue-tied today, the overriding opposite tendency toward low and falling interest rates reflects mankind's overall progress, its advance from barbarism to civilization. Specifically, the trend toward lower interest rates reflect, uh, reflects the rise of the Western world, its people's increasing prosperity, farsightness, intelligence, and moral strength, and the unparalleled height of 19th century European civilization. All right. Right. What so he's know. kind of just making that same point
2: again about uh, yeah, low interest rates versus high interest rates. And he's talking about in a more free market scenario, if the interest rates were being dictated by the actual market conditions, uh, that this would be the case. Uh, yep. you know. uh, but All when right. the government comes in and yeah, fucks with the shit, then that's uh, yeah, when things go wrong and yep. that no longer really is the case. Uh, we also have uh, fewer footnotes in this section, it looks like. So yeah, this might it looks be a like that, yeah. yeah. This is a little <laughs> bit uh, – all right. All right. Um, with this historical backdrop and in accordance with economic theory then, it should be expected that 20th century interest rates would be still lower than 19th century rates. Indeed, only two possible explanations exist why this is not so. The first possibility is that 20th century real incomes did not exceed or even fell below 19th century incomes. However, this explanation can be ruled out on empirical grounds for it seems fairly uncontroversial that 20th century incomes are in fact higher. Then only the second explanation remains. If real incomes are higher, but interest rates are not lower, then the Ceteris Paribus clause can no longer be assumed true. Rather, the social time preference schedule must have shifted upward. That is, the character of the population must have changed. People on the people on the average must have lost more, lost in moral and intellectual strength and become more present oriented. Indeed, this appears to be the case. So. Um, and ceteris paribus, I think we said, means uh, all other things remaining equal. Is that what it means? I don't even I think so. so. Yeah, <laughs> I forget. I'm losing yeah. my mind here. But yeah, so basically he's saying that. Um, right. So in uh, the he was talking about the 20th century uh, interest rates, actually, I guess he's saying they were higher than because uh, I thought he was going to start talking about the government keep, keeping them artificially yeah. low. But I think he's talking about before they were doing that, we saw interest rates uh Rise rather than uh, fall. Uh, yeah. And he's saying, well, why is that? Uh, and he's saying that it, it might make sense if people's uh, real incomes uh, were lower, but that was yeah. not actually the case. They were still higher, even though obviously they're. Incomes are going to be higher as like inflation gets higher too, but their real incomes are actually higher at this point. Yeah, and this we're talking about this was like after like the eighteen
1: hundreds where you yeah, know you he's the twentieth century. We're in the twenty first right. century right now. You yeah, yeah. Think so right, 20- he's talking about
2: the nineteen So hundreds. You're following up, yeah, the eighteen hundreds, which is like yeah. a yeah a period of like massive production, basically. Mm-hmm. So yeah, people at this point, yeah, their real wage, their real or the real incomes, I mean, were yeah definitely higher. Yeah, so you this was.
1: World War One, World War Two, he pointed out the war point. Mm. Like, uh, so this is where interest rates started coming up. And so, yeah. but like obviously we know now we're in a period where there's low, and it's like, oh, is that really because society is so much better? You know, we're in such a good economic condition. And I'm sure we'll get to that, but you got to keep in mind there was a lot of wars, a lot of fucked up shit. This is when the it started transitioning the entire world from monarchy to democracy too during mm. this key period of time. There's a lot that happened in the 20th century. Right and so there's a lot of economic turmoil and uh yeah, yeah I'm sure we'll get into why now they're coming back down and uh, so what, yeah. right
2: yeah so well yeah even though yeah he wrote this book yeah before you know what we've seen since like 2008 and whatever but yeah the so he is saying here that the only explanation for this would be that uh people's time preference schedules that that like time preference curve like they must have actually jumped to a different curve mm-hmm. And their time preference has been heightened, and yes, as you were talking about that, is because yeah, the government has been doing things to shift people's time preference, so people are now um, yeah more present oriented than they were before. Yeah.
1: Uh, so that keep in mind, on. it was around the end of the twentieth century is when we you know started going more fiat, less off the gold standard, stuff like that. Too. Right, nineteen seventy one is 20 where 20 things 20.
2: all went haywire, yep. and I think it was in the nineteen seventies. I want to say uh, the interest rates like went way up at one point to the point where, because the government yeah had started you know really interfering with it. I think they actually went up like above 20% or something at one point, I want to say, in like the 70s. And if that happened now, the whole economy would crash. So yeah. now people are saying that interest rates are like really high right now, even though they, I think they've gone up like maybe quarter of a point, half a point or whatever. And that's mm-hmm. like drastic now because we've been near zero for so long at this point. It's yeah. crazy. All right. Uh, from 1815 onward, throughout Europe and uh, the West, throughout Europe, we're both tongue Throughout yeah. Europe and the Western world, minimum interest rates steadily declined to a historic low of well below three percent on the average at the turn of the century. With the onset of the Democratic Republican Age, this earlier tendency came to a halt and seems to have changed direction, revealing 20th century Europe and the U.S. as declining civilizations. An inspection of the lowest, uh, the lowest decennial average interest rates for Britain, France, the Netherlands, Belgium, Germany, Sweden, Switzerland, and the U.S., for instance, shows that during the entire post-World War I era, interest rates in Europe were never as low, were never as low as or lower than they had been during the second half of the 19th century. Only in the U.S. in the 1950s did interest rates ever fall below late 19th-century rates yet this was only a short-lived phenomenon and even then us interest rates were not lower than they had been in britain during the second half of the 19th century instead the 20th century rates were significantly higher than the 19th century rates universally and if any and if anything they have exhibited a rising tendency this conclusion does not substantially change even when it is taken into account that modern interest rates, in particular since the 1970s, include a systematic inflation premium. After adjusting recent nominal interest rates for inflation in order to yield an estimate of real interest rates, contemporary interest rates still appear to be significantly higher than they were 100 years ago. On the average, minimum long-term interest rates in Europe and the U.S. nowadays seem to be well above 4% and possibly as high as 5%. That is above the interest rates of 17th century Europe and is high or higher than 15th century rates. Likewise, current U.S. savings rates of around 5% of disposable income are no higher than they were more than 300 years ago in a much poorer 17th century England. So, yeah, there's kind of a lot there, but he's basically saying that um, what what we were kind of just saying that, um, like, the interest rates, I guess uh, he's referring to them as real interest rates. Maybe like the, the interest rate, even right now, even though we see that interest rates because the government is intervening are totally like really low, close to zero. But the interest rate, given all the other conditions, the interest rate should actually be quite high right now. And it'd be, it, it would be, as he said, like way higher than it was centuries ago. And at the same time, uh, the yeah, so the savings uh, has not been there to back it up which is why we need higher interest rates because higher interest rates uh, incentivize saving because you're going to get more on your money when you save it. If that all makes sense. Yeah. Okay. Um, parallel to this development and reflecting a more specific aspect of the same underlying phenomenon of high or rising social time preferences, indicators of family disintegration, dysfunctional families have exhibited a systematic increase. And I do like when he starts pointing that out too, as more another indicator of um, higher time preferences yeah dysfunctional yeah. families and yeah degeneracy and things like that
1: yeah too too often people don't take into account the the effects economics have on culture uh, and you know right. there that's why I say in a certain sense you can make the case economics is everything and this is why yeah. his like time preference ask thing is you know pretty cool because it does it have explains a lot of cultural phenomenon as well
2: that's sort of the uh, yeah the Misesian argument. I have my hat right here. Human action, like everything is human action, including economics, which is a social science. So uh, this is the Mises human action podcast mm-hmm. hat. Got it from the Mises store, baby. Yep. Uh, yeah. So basically, what you just said, uh, economics is just humans acting. E- but you could argue that everything is economic yeah. action. Yeah. Or you could argue that economics is. Yeah. Humans act. They're the same thing. Like I can,
1: I can place a value on scratching my ass.
2: (laughs) (laughs) Everything is subjective value. What you spend your time on, you are making a judgment there because, you know, time is limited. So you're making a judgment there and what is more valuable for me to spend my time on basically. Yeah. So that's an economic action.
1: Yep. Um, Till the end of the Until century. the end of the
2: 19th century, the bulk of government spending, typically more than 50%, went to financing the military. Assuming government expenditures to be then about 5% of the national product, this amounted to military expenditures of 2.5% of the national product. The remainder went to government administration. Welfare spending or public charity played almost no role. Insurance was considered to be in the province of individual responsibility and poverty relief seen as a task of voluntary charity. In contrast, as a reflection of the egalitarianism inherent in democracy, from the beginning of the democratization in the late 19th century onward came the collectivization of individual responsibility. Military expenditures have typically risen to 5 to 10 percent of the national product in the course of the 20th century. But with public expenditures currently making up 50% of the national product, military expenditures now only represent 10 to 20% of total government spending. The bulk of public spending, typically more than 50% of total expenditures, or 25% of the national product, is now eaten up by public welfare spending, by compulsory government insurance against illness, occupational injuries, old age, unemployment, and an ever-expanding list of other disabilities. So I don't know if there's a whole lot to add there, and I don't know what percentage of government spending military is military expenditures now because I would guess that it's gone up again since then because the U.S. is at, like, so many just nonstop wars now, right? At this point, like, when he wrote this book, like, the it was before – I think he wrote – he must have written this before 9-11 and the – like, those real expansions in the, the military state happened.
1: Yeah. Well, I do like in this one how we, the, the point he's kind of making on is uh, in a certain sense, the idea, <clears throat> and this kind of ties culture into economics again, is kind of the idea of how how is affected culture and affected us as just human beings in general is the more money they take away from us and on the promise of uh, we're going to help people, you know, welfare, et cetera, although he does make the point most of that goes to military spending and, you know, shit that's not necessarily even that. The more so that happened, the less so we actually on an individual level contributed to those type of things. I know we as libertarians get frequently accused of being cold, callous individuals who don't want to help other people. But that's not the case. Like in a in a true free society, you would see uh, there would be wealthy people who and people of lesser wealth that just, you know, contribute to uh, certain, you know, clubs or, uh, you know, what, whatever, what have you, uh, maybe work programs for people looking for work, uh, things like that, that, yeah. you know, uh, they would be doing that on their own dole. Uh, and it, it, you would, it would be, it's, there is definitely some, way more to be said of something who does that of their own individual volition than of someone who just is forced by the, essentially the gun of the government to give me your fucking money and I'll do it for you. Like it, so, now you don't get that thing of doing the uh, the right thing, taking care of your fellow man, and you're also being robbed because it's now you're put in a situation of uh, you. It's just, it's kind of a time preference thing, you know, if you think about mm-hmm. it, because it's it now you're far more focused on your own individual capabilities of survival your own right. resources, and you don't have this abundance of resources to where you're able to help others be able to get into a situation to where the, yeah. they are, uh, you know, not, they're in a situation where they can take care of themselves. So. Right.
2: The, yeah. The government coming in there and saying, we're doing all this, that completely disincentivizes people from helping each other. Where Typically before that was the case, yeah, they would, uh, you know, people would help their family members or help their community, you, know, you had churches doing that and things like that. Uh, you know, way more than what happens now, because the government is just like, well, we we are the welfare state now, so we're doing that. So people are just like, well, fuck it, the government's doing yeah. it. That's what my taxes are going to. I'm helping.
1: Yeah, I'll be the first to admit, I don't, I don't think I contribute just about anything to fucking any sort of anything like that. But I'm not. If if I was able to keep all my money, I would have more money and be in a situation to be able to. I would love to. Uh, right, right, right. Yeah. That's the, the yeah. other. Thing. Yeah, <laughs> yeah exactly. like yeah. I would love to. I'd have no problem with that. Uh, you know, I, like, there's also the thing, like, um, I've been seeing more of the uh, Salvation Army people lately, and uh, they, they are it's such Christmas a... time, yeah. They yeah, come uh, out like, around Christmas time with the if bells, I If I remember correctly, Salvation Army is, like, notorious for taking a shitload of money and being incredibly shitty. i are not it some, to them, no. Yeah, I don't, because I know that's, like, very little of that's actually going to go to someone. Right. matters <laughs> like- so,
2: yeah so i donate yeah when i donate i donate like directly to people basically where i know that you know the money's going to them uh yeah pretty much uh i would use like the donor c app to donate uh some causes for a while and unfortunately uh gret glier the creator of that i believe was murdered earlier this year in his 30s which is mm. that's another whole thing totally yeah.
1: ridiculous but yeah. yeah there's a lot of weird conspiracies that seem to have a lot of truth when it comes to all those charities how there's slush funds for powerful entities so, you know, the not good shit. Well, I, think, you know. I think he was killed uh, for personal reasons, but you never know. Oh, okay. All right. Consequently, by increasingly relieving individuals of the responsibility of having to provide for their own health, safety, and old age, the range and temporal horizon of private provisionary action have been systematically reduced. In particular, the value of marriage, family, and children have fallen since one can fall back on public assistance. Yeah. Thus, since the onset of the Democratic-Republican age – The number of children has declined, and the size of the endogenous population has stagnated or even fallen. For centuries, until the end of the 19th century, the birth rate was almost constant, somewhere between 30 to 40 per 1,000 population, uh, usually somewhat higher in predominantly Catholic and lower in Protestant countries. In sharp contrast, during the 20th century, birth rates all over Europe and the U.S. have experienced a dramatic decline down to about 15 to 22 per 1,000. At the same time, the rates of divorce, illegitimacy, single parenting, singledom and abortion have steadily increased while personal savings rates have begun to stagnate or even fall rather than rise proportionally or even over proportionally with rising incomes, which to the other point of not being able to provide, if you have, are keeping less of your own money, it's also probably going to be harder to provide for a family as well. And like, that wasn't his main point there too, but you know, like it is also the fact that they give you a safety net. So, uh, you know, incentivizes you know single motherhood, uh, which I, I know everyone brings the case yeah. of the battered housewife. Obviously, no no one's saying that's cool, like you know I mean? like, but it also makes it so there's less of incentive to stick around. You know, well, yeah, the government
2: thing. is literally subsidizing single motherhood, so they're paying you, yeah, if you're a single mother, so they're obviously incentivizing more people to do that, and uh, they're also incentivizing abortion by uh, providing it. And they're definitely pushing it. Like there's definitely a propaganda campaign around that as well. So.
1: Yeah. I mean, they, uh, I don't know if they still do. I feel like there was something a while back where they changed a little bit, but actually I, th- I feel like they still do. They literally, uh, the government provides money to Planned Parenthood, which I know they'll yeah, yeah, be yeah, like, that's oh. what I mean. Yeah. People will say dumb shit like, Oh, well that goes to this and that, that doesn't go for the abortion services. It's like, well, that motherfucker provides abortion yeah. and money is fungible. So it's going to the same entity. Like you can say, I'm giving you this money explicitly for this reason, but it's like, but now that frees up other funds for the other thing because money is fungible. (laughs) Planned
2: Parenthood does also yeah, provide like care for pregnant women and things like that. But, yeah, they do a lot of abortions. That's kind of their primary thing. So.
1: There are other places you could give that money that don't provide uh, abortions, that provide all those other services. Yeah. And I don't like, consider an
2: abortion to be medical care for a pri- uh, pregnant yeah. woman, by the way. No. So I'm example, making that uh, distinction.
1: I wish I could remember the name. I used to be a big follower of uh, Crowder way back in the day. And I remember there was someone he would always push. that. W- and this is one that the uh, left will typically demonize as these like, people try to convince people of abortions. And they pre- pretty much provide all the same services of. of uh, of a, parent, a planned parenthood. Uh, the only difference is they're they are will not provide abortions and they will try to counsel people on you know, like abortion and being like, why, may, like, provide assistance of whatever one they can yeah, to help collect, to keep like, the kid. Like, you're evil if you do that, yeah. yeah. Which is like, okay, no one's making you go to that place, but if we're going to incentivize one or the two, I would prefer they don't incentivize either, right? But like, if you're going to, it's like, do we incentivize? The destruction of families or the production of families. Yeah. <laughs> like, exactly. Yeah. Um, all right. Moreover, as a consequence of the depreciation of law resulting from legislation and the collectivization of responsibility, affected in particular by social security legislation, the rates of crimes of a serious nature such as murder, assault, robbery, and theft have also sh- has also shown a systematic upward tendency. Depreciation of law resulting. In- I'm trying to think if there's anything there. Like. Um, yeah, I mean, okay. He's kind of getting at the point that law is basically becoming meaningless, is kind of what he's getting at. So, where it becomes more meaningless, there kind of becomes less of a rule of law in a certain way. It, it You know, there is wins. You always see cases of people getting off for murder for X, Y, and Z. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. You know? and
2: there, yeah. There are so many more laws now that it's also impossible to enforce them all. And you're right. Like what you just said, like what we're seeing more recently is like there. Uh, like these democratic uh, like cities and stuff, especially are like pretty much incentivizing people to like steal, like up to $99 worth of stuff and all these other things are just letting these people off. And like, I I tweeted uh, a little bit earlier today, in my neck of the woods here in Massachusetts, there was just a uh, double murder of this old couple. And the guy that committed it had like this really long rap sheet and like a, a bunch of it, you'd say, yeah, fine. It's like drug possession, drug sales, all this shit. Like, whatever like non-violent stuff but he also had like violent assaults like robberies all this other stuff in his rap sheet and they had just completely dropped the charges let him off and he like assaulted this autistic dude oh and he happens to be you know a druggie who's doing anything that he can to get money for it so what happens you know he gets off on all that and he winds up committing a double murder and i think he probably murdered their dog as well yeah Or killed their
1: dog, yeah. In the normal course of events, that is with rising standards of living, it would be expected that the protection against social disasters such as crime would undergo continual improvement just as one would expect the protection against natural disasters such as floods, earthquakes, and hurricanes to become progressively better. Indeed, throughout the Western world, this appears to have been the case by and large until recently during the second half of the 20th century when crime rates began to uh, climb steadily upward. To be sure, there are a number of factors other than increased irresponsibility and short-sightedness brought on by legislation and welfare that may contribute to crime. Men commit more crimes than women, the young more than the old, blacks more than whites, Uh, and city dwellers more than villagers. By the way, I would say even Hoppe would probably say it's not a... It's not a, uh, you know, it's not a direct result of them being black. There's a whole lot of other factors that go in that. It's not black and white, you mean? Yeah. Like, so if anyone wants to get offended by that, literally the statistics bear this out. 13% of the
2: population and over 50% of the violent crimes. Yeah.
1: Being offended by someone saying that says more about you than it does about them. Like how you, that's more saying that you are interpreting a certain way. (laughs) Statistic, you can't, yeah. I mean, you're
2: The numbers don't lie, but uh, if you want to, yeah, you can debate like why that is the case.
1: Yes. Accordingly, changes in the composition of the sexes, age groups, races, and the degree of urbanization could be expected to have a systematic effect on crime. However, all of these factors are relatively stable and thus cannot account for any systematic uh, change in the long-term downward trend of crime rates. As for European countries, their populations were and are comparatively homogenous. In the U.S., the proportion of blacks has remained stable. The sex composition is largely a biological constant. As a result of wars, only the proportion of males has periodically fallen, thus actually reinforcing the normal trend toward falling crime rates.
2: He's he's promoting war right now because it kills more men, and men are more likely to commit crimes.
1: I think he would also make the case too that the the war itself probably incentivizes violence, you know, oh, yeah. towards men. So it's yeah. kind of a wash if if you if oh, I, you think about it, at best, yeah, yeah, at best a wash. <laughs> Similarly, the composition of age groups has changed only slowly, and due to declining birth rates and higher life expectancies the average rate of the population has actually increased, thus helping to depress crime rates still further. Average age. Yeah. Finally, yeah. degree of urbanization began to increase dramatically from about 1800 onward. A period of cr- rising crime rates during the early 19th century can be attributed to the initial spurt of urbanization. Yet after a period of adjustment to the new phenomenon of urbanization from the mid-19th century onward, the countervailing tendency toward falling crime rates took hold again, despite the fact that the process of rapid, rapid urbanization continued for about another hundred years. And when crime rates began to move systematically upward from the mid-20th century onward, the process of increasing urbanization had actually come to a halt.
2: What? He's saying uh, cities alone aren't uh, the cause of crime? What? Yeah.
1: <laughs> I mean, I'd say they definitely have something to do with it, but... Uh, uh, it's yeah. not, that's not the only factor. There's always a million factors to every div- yeah. given thing. And I'm sure he'll, he's getting to that. Well,
2: c- Cities all tend to be more democratic and have that type of yeah. uh, rule. So.
1: Yeah. He's also talking about, uh he was talking about like 1800 onward at that point, 19th century. I don't think he's talking modern day right at this point. So uh he, he's right, kind of right, getting right. to like, yeah, there's more urbanization and that's probably going to uh, increase it to some extent, but also if we had a, a true free society with a good economic system, like there still would be some level of urbanization that occurs and there probably would be slightly higher crime rates, but not to the degree that there are now there. It's obviously going to be a trade-off. If you're someone who wants to live in an urban environment, even in this free society, there are going to be, right. you're probably gonna have more job opportunities likely. Although I think there would be probably less urban uh, environments in a free society, but there still would be some and they would probably have higher crime rates. you would probably also have, Uh, maybe not more job opportunities, but different job opportunities. So it'd be a cost benefit thing. So it's not as simple as, you know, just urbanization. Although I do think there is something to having a higher concentration of people in a given area. No shit. You're going to have more crime. Like it's not really like saying that it's not just
2: demographics either. Uh.
1: Yeah. All right. It thus appears that the phenomenon of rising crime rates cannot be explained other than with reference to the process of democratization. By a rising degree of social time preference, an increasing loss of individual responsibility intellectually and morally, and a bit diminished respect for all law, moral relativism, stimulated by an unabated flood of legislation. Yeah. Uh, I'll let you take over here because uh, – Yeah, you give me the, the two pages now, that have a the massive
2: – Now the notes come for you. All right. Go on. That's right. Yeah. So, I mean, do we have anything to – uh, really. talking about in that uh, part mm-hmm.
1: of that. Uh, I don't really I mean, he's, so. Yeah, he's just, just basically saying again
2: say. that, yeah, it's including in these cities, you have like uh, more democratic forms of government, essentially, where there's just an overall tendency towards um, like less uh, responsibility, higher time preference, higher crime, uh, yep. all of that. Uh, all right. Of course, high time preference is by no means equivalent with crime. A high time preference can also find expression in such perfectly lawful activities as recklessness, unreliability, poor manners, laziness, stupidity, or
1: hedonism. This is where he's going to start pissing off the libertarians. I can tell you right now. I, right. I have the which, feeling. Which,
2: which is why we say even though these things, <laughs> we don't think that they should be enforced by law. We do not think that uh, there should be you know, aggression in response to these things. But we would still say that we would want to – disincentivize these things and tell people, Hey, you shouldn't be doing these things. Yes. Yeah. Right. Which Which is perfectly in line with libertarianism. And I would argue it is uh, more of a pro Liberty stance. Yes.
1: I agree as well. uh, That foster a, a, a strong uh, moral society. I do think, uh, you know, fosters a, you know, uh, a free society. And it's kind of almost a vicious circle, I think, in a certain sort of ways, you know, Yes. It's, and it's also kind of like a chicken egg thing, which comes first. I don't fucking know. It's it, just go for both. <laughs> you know, so. Yeah, it, it, yeah.
2: It kind of becomes, yeah, like the cycle, right? Like, uh, like politics being downstream from culture or whatever, they both influence each other. But, you yeah, know, I believe it's cyclical. Um, nonetheless, a systematic relationship between high time preference and crime exists for, in order to earn a market income, a certain minimum of planning, patience, and sacrifice is required. One must first work for a while before one gets paid. In contrast, most serious criminal, criminal activities such as murder, assault, rape, robbery, theft, and burglary require no such discipline. The reward for the aggressor is immediate and tangible, whereas the sacrifice, possible punishment, lies in the future and is uncertain. Consequently, if the social degree of time preference were increased, it would be expected that the frequency in particular of these uh, – the frequency in particular of these forms of aggressive behavior
1: would rise as they in fact did.
2: So- By the way,
1: I want to make a note. I think later he may go into – because I know there's a lot of passages in this book that a lot of people find objectionable. And I, I don't remember the specifics, if I agree with them entirely or not, and we'll we'll get to those later. But I would say like now once we get into these like cultural type things that he's explaining – I think even Hoppe would probably – I mean maybe – I don't want to put words in his mouth, but I feel like he'd probably admit like, hey, this is a little bit more murky when we're saying what is good behavior. Like what are things you should or should not be doing? This is more subjective as opposed to – it's far more objective in, in a libertarian sense what should or should not be uh, something that's punished via violence or or what have you, like property rights violations. Uh, yeah. So the point being is like you may find things later on in this book when he talks about subjectionable – but I would, you know, I would say, uh, don't just be like completely discredited. I'm like, if he starts talking about homosexuals, which I think he does at some point, if you yeah, find it objectionable, oh, yeah, just does. be like, just chalk up to a disagreement. Because this isn't a part where, he, like, it right. is a lot more subjective. And, uh, you know, it's one of those things yeah. that I think in a true free society, you would kind of find out what behaviors are more conducive by the areas that are doing better. But right. in it, we're in a murky area where we're kind of just trying to read the tea leaves at this point. So some yeah. of these things that he may he may find objectionable or you or me might find objectionable in a, like in a moral sense or what have you, it may not necessarily be really all that uh, objectionable uh, right. It once it it's borne out. But the point being is it does – those things are things that affect you, things – Uh, you know, culture does matter, you know, your, your fam, familial relationships, the way you engage in the world, even if you are not, you know, uh, fucking up any property rights, it matters, but now it it is, we're definitely in a spot where we're, you know, you can kind of have a spirited debate on whether, which, which is, which behaviors are more conducive to a better life. Right. No. Well, I would say yeah,
2: yeah the, that whole thing that he just listed there with you know, uh, yeah, laziness, stupidity, hedonism, yeah. all that stuff. Like I would recklessness. I would say all of that is like pretty obviously,
1: yeah, like bad, like not going well, to lead a, to. A I more, think a little bit of hedonism every now and then. it's not, not, not going to lead bad, to a more productive society. Yeah, well, sure. Yeah, because uh, even hedonism is kind of subjective. What does that even mean? Are you just saying yeah. someone plays video games occasionally? I don't know. Sometimes it's good to take some steam off. I'm not a fan of video games, but if that's your For thing, sure. you're not spending five hours a day or neglecting your family, whatever,
2: or, you know, like. Right. I'm talking about, yeah, yeah, being like totally unproductive. And I think what he's kind of getting at here is like, uh, like one of the things that we have here is that uh, like the government uh, makes that barrier to entry into uh, and you could get into like the minimum wage and things like that. They make that barrier to entry to being able to get a job at all and be a productive person. They make that more and more difficult. So that's going to incentivize this person to rely on criminal activities, uh, you know, more so you know or it might uh incentivize that um, so i think he's sort of alluding to that fact and then uh he's saying kind of what i said before where with yeah the murkiness of all the laws and the legal system how many laws there are that like, you're thinking like present oriented like you know you're more likely to be poor at this point so it's like i need more of the stuff you might be more likely to steal or commit a crime or something like that to get that stuff and so you're more present oriented, but you're also think even if you're future oriented to some degree, you're still thinking like, Hey, like they might not catch me or something like that. Or I might not suffer consequences for this. Whereas, you know, if you took the government out of there and you allowed people to defend their own property and things like that, that really wouldn't be the case like, you know, gun ownership and things like that. People would be way more uh, disincentivized to be like, Hey, I'm just going to go steal from this guy. Well, because this guy, you know, might have a gun and he's actually allowed to defend himself. So.
1: Yeah. I would also think too, in this cultural point I was making, you could almost make a time preference uh, argument to it. Cause like I kind of brought up hedonism and uh, you could apply, say something like sexuality, like in a, let's say for example, like when me and my wife are about to hit it off, we're about to bang. At that moment in time, I'm very present oriented and I'm very much trying to get laid. But now if my if my life becomes soon consumed with just trying to have sex with my wife or just sex in general, right. it's not a good thing. And right. and, and there are and in I guess there might be something to be said. And yeah. Hoppe makes the point. It's I think he made the point earlier. It's not necessarily always a negative thing to be present oriented in a given situation. Sometimes it's actually the right course of of action. Well, right. Like my example
2: was if somebody is threatening to kill you, like they're in your face right now and they're about to kill you, obviously you have to be present oriented and defend yourself.
1: Yeah. But, but now if you're always present oriented in whatever given, uh, you know, factor of life, yeah, that's going to be a problem. (laughs) Right. You know, so but right,
2: but uh, but Jose, uh, you're supposed to only be using the sex to make the
1: babies. So yes, uh,
2: you, you need to be more future oriented, sir. Yeah,
1: um, yeah, I guess you could also make a case that the sexuality is a little bit future oriented. But you, you you get my point. <laughs> <right>. <laughs> yeah.
2: All right. Conclusion: uh, monarchy, democracy, and the idea of natural order, uh, which I think is actually the title of the chapter as well. Uh, From the vantage point of elementary economic theory, and in light of historical evidence then, a revisionist view of modern history results. The Whig theory, that's W-H-I-G, of history, according to which mankind marches continually forward
1: toward ever higher levels of progress, is incorrect. From the viewpoint of those- Which, real quick, I want to say that's probably the, the operandum modus, or whatever the fucking term is, of Most people, modus operandi of most people. Like that is kind of, I feel like before I got like red pill, that's kind of the vibe most people have because that is kind of what you're taught that humankind is always progressing. And I mean, I'm sure you could probably make a case that that's
2: what progressivism is. Yes, exactly.
1: And that's why progressivism has infiltrated so many things. So it's kind of what it is. And it's not always the case. There are definitely cases of stagnation or regression Or even progressing, but not to the degree to which you could be progressing, essentially.
2: Oh, yeah, for sure.
1: Um, Yeah,
2: yeah, and I think the argument is going to be that, yeah, like with government not existing there, that those periods are going to be – there are going to be fewer of them, and they will be less uh, drastic, let's say. Yeah. Okay.
1: Um, From the viewpoint.
2: Yes, from the viewpoint of those who prefer less exploitation over more – and who value far-sightedness and individual responsibility above short-sightedness and irresponsibility, the historic transition from monarchy to democracy represents not progress but civilizational decline. I love lines like that where he just kind of like hammers that in. Nor does this verdict change if more or other indicators are included. Quite to the contrary, without question, the most important indicator of exploitation and present-orientedness. Not discussed above is war. Yet if this indicator were included, if this indicator were included, the relative performance of Democratic Republican government appears to be even worse, not better. In addition to increased exploitation and social decay, the transition from monarchy to democracy has brought a change from limited warfare to total war. And the 20th century, the age of democracy, must be ranked
1: also among the most murderous periods in all of history. I do love how he makes the point that the war is one of the worst things we do. And as a result, it has one of the the it is the thing that has the worst result on us, even down to a cultural level. Yeah, is kind of the point he's making. And I think there is something to that because we like to look at war as this thing that's far off. And actually, we talked about this a while. A while ago, like domestic policy is a, in a certain sense, matters more because it's a more immediate concern. But Mm -hmm. in an ultimate sense, war does matter more. But even then, the domestic policy in a certain sense is war uh, as well. It's the war of the government against you. Oh, yeah. Like the COVID
2: uh, is definitely a war. I mean,
1: it's it's to a lesser degree. So it actually probably has a lesser effect on us, but it's a more immediate effect. So, in the order of operations, of which things you should tackle and which things you actually have control over, the domestic things are going to be, you know, what you can control. But war is the worst thing the government does, and is the thing that has the yes. most profound effect on us, down to a family fucking unit, like down to mm-hmm. just the 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 behavior in which people, you know, operate under. Like it, it's it's just yeah. cancer. Yeah.
2: Yeah, I would agree with that. And then like, you know, the more like domestic stuff, I think, as you were saying, uh, kind of just gets put on top of that. It's like, well, I have to deal with this first because this is an immediate threat to me. Like, I have to make sure that I'm not going to have this vaccine force into me and shit like that. Like, I have to worry about myself right now.
1: Yeah. And and like my point too, is like, it's with war. What am I going to do other than not join the military and do my best to uh, keep my wealth to myself and not give it to the government to contribute to war to the best that I can, yes. you know, whatever degree is you know, the most possible, most, um, you know, feasible. Yeah. You know. yeah. Thus, inevitably, two final questions arrive. The current state of affairs can hardly be the end of history. What can we expect and what can we do? As for the first question, the answer is brief. At the end of the 20th century, dem- Democratic republicanism in the US and all across the Western world has apparently exhausted the reserve fund. That was inherited from the past. For decades into the 1990s boom, real incomes have stagnated or even fallen. The public debt and the cost of social security systems have brought on the prospect of an imminent economic meltdown. At the same time, the societal breakdown and social conflict have risen to dangerous heights. If the tendency toward increased exploitation and in present orientedness continues on its current path, the Western democratic welfare states will collapse as the East European Socialist People's Republics did in the late 18 or 1980s hence one is less of the second question what can we do now in order to prevent the process of civilization decline from running its mm. full course to an economic and social catastrophe and this
2: is yeah, hopper's thing like what must be done basically yep. or, i don't know if he gets into it here but he does you know he will talk about well we need to decentralize we need to put ourselves in a situation where uh you know we're the closest people around us are people that are going to be people like that more, I guess, kind of agree with us uh, culturally, I would say, is one of the points that he makes. Yeah. And also we're talking about having much more localized uh, or even non-existent uh, governments and things like that that we have to worry about. Like We're
1: just yeah. going to be ignoring yeah larger governments and things like that. Um, Which I do want to say what must be done if you're listening to this. That was, I believe, an essay or even a speech that later became an essay or vice versa the, yeah. of Hoppe's, and I believe you can find the speech. I, I believe he's done it as a speech online, and also yeah. uh Quinonez has done a uh, live reading on it if you want to check it out on uh, the Pete Quinone show, show. Uh, it was very good. I don't remember who his guests were, but that's good. I would say for me personally, I've you know, I've, you know a lot of people know if you follow his channel, I've even mentioned here, I'm more of the agorist. So that's not my 100% ideal praxis, but I, I've said many times in my personal opinion uh, if, if, you know, like if I'm not convinced of agorism, that's the next practice I'm cons- I'm to I'm, I'm uh, believe, like would think is the best. And, you know, I like it's yeah. so for, I've said before, I think Konkin and, uh, and Hoppe are really the only ways forward, you know? So like, yeah. I'm very, I'm very, 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 very sympathetic to that path. Mm-hmm. It uh, you know, the, the what must be done path, so definitely yeah. check it out. I highly suggest it. It's yeah. good reading. It's where Hoppe lays out his praxis, which basically is mm-hmm. what must be done. You know, that's yeah, when we're yeah. talking about praxis, yeah. And you know, so, me, I'm
2: more on that train, yeah. I'm on the, yeah. I'm a, I'm on the Hoppe train, so which yeah. I
1: can sympathize with. I think it, there's a lot to be taken from it, even if you are an agorist guy. I like, I've you know, I've talked to hoppians before, and I actually think like agorists, and like if you had a community that was like a hopping community that also had agorists in it too, I think they would. Mm-hmm they would get along just fine. You know, I know like depending, I mean, don't be wrong with some <laughs> shitty agorists, but you know, someone who actually understood what Konkin said and takes it to heart and isn't a complete degenerate. Yeah. I think you, you you're, you're the only non-shitty way. one that I know. Of, so. Yeah, I know. I know. <laughs> I say the, the worst thing about agorism is agorists. <laughs> yeah. um, I see I, you in the chat, quest fanning. Thanks for showing up, man. Yeah.
2: Um. Yeah. Uh, I was going to mention one thing on the, Oh, so he's, uh, this is interesting, like that paragraph that you just read. If you just look at that and you kind of apply it to like the situation we're at now, where that's become even more the case. He was talking about how throughout like the 1990s, uh, real wages had actually started to like go down and be on the decline. So people are actually, people actually have less real income now. Now, with all everything that's happened, like since he's written this book, it's become even worse. So, like, when uh, when I read this again in like 2020, I was thinking, like, holy shit, like, this is like, Know everything that he's saying, like, is just happening to more and more of an extent. And we're, you know, that's what we're up against. We're up against this, man. Yeah, so that and more of the societal breakdown, and yep, yeah, just all of that.
1: Above all, the idea of democracy and majority rule must be delegitimized. Ultimately, the course of history is determined by ideas, be they true or false, just as kings could not exercise. Uh, Their rule, unless a majority of public opinion accepted such rule as legitimate, so will de- uh, democratic rulers not last uh, without ideological support in public opinion. Right. Likewise, the transition from monarchical to democratic rule must be explained as fundamentally nothing but a change in public opinion. Uh, in fact, until the end of World War I, the overwhelming majority of the public in Europe accepted monarchical rule as legitimate today hardly anyone would do so on the contrary the idea of marco government is considered laughable in which yeah. to you know some degree is it makes sense and i even think Kappa I, I think he may have made a point of that before uh, but you know it, mm. it is what yeah, it well
2: is. yeah there's there's a reason why uh, you know the government takes hold of the entire corporate press and academia and all of that uh, you know just yeah all the public schools they're trying to propagandize you and normalize all of this like in your minds. So that they don't even want people to think about it really like this is the way it is you have to be used to it so you know there's a reason why they do that because and there's a reason why they crack down on anybody speaking out against any of it as we've been seeing more and more so all of that is certainly very important uh, changing yeah. people's minds yeah
1: yeah which i would say monarchy is laughable but once you really start to understand yes. democracy, it's even more laughable. So, right, I, th-
2: I think yeah. one of the points that probably Hoppe, I think is you know making throughout this book is that uh, like yes, it is laughable, but it's more obviously laughable.
1: Yep. Consequently, a return to the ancient regime must be regarded as impossible. The legitimacy of Marco rule appears to have been irretrievably lost. Nor would such a return be a genuine solution. For monarchies, whatever their uh, relative merits, do exploit. And do contribute to present orientedness as well. Rather, the idea of democratic republican rule must be rendered equally, if not more, laughable. Yes. Not in the least by identifying it as the source of the ongoing uh, process of decivilization. Yeah, you just said what I was going right. to say. Yeah, yeah, surprising. exactly. So he is saying they're both, uh,
2: yeah, laughable. However, uh, in the public opinion now, monarchy is considered to be way more laughable than democracy, and he wants to reverse course on that.
1: Yep. He wants both to be considered laughable and democracy to be considered way more laughable than monarchy, basically. Yep. But at the same time, and still more importantly, a positive alternative to monarchy and democracy, the idea of a natural order, must be uh, delineated and understood. On the one hand, this involves the recognition that it is not explo- exploitation, either monarchical or democratic, but private property, uh, production, and voluntary exchange are the ultimate sources of human civilization. On the other hand, it involves the recognition of a fundamental sociological insight, which incidentally also helps identify precisely where the historic opposition of Marquis went wrong. That the maintenance and preservation of a private property-based exchange economy requires a sociological presupposition, the existence of a voluntarily acknowledged natural elite, a nobilitas naturalis. Which It is mm-hmm. funny, a lot of libertarians uh, shun the idea of elites. But it's like yes. the point Hoppe makes in a true free society, and he kind of gets in this. is actually one of the benefits of monarchy, but that that concept of the natural elite gets corrupted. Um, yeah. Oh, yeah. thanks, Quest. I saw yeah, you just thanks, shared man. it. Oh, uh, hell yeah, yeah. man. Yeah, that, that's not it. a little following either.
2: No, not at all.
1: <laughs> Yeah, yeah. You're uh, definitely one of my favorite mutuals. Hopefully, I don't know if you follow me on my current account, but uh, hopefully I'll get my old accounts back here soon. Um, yeah, I'm Senor Jose 2020 dog. Uh, okay. <laughs> I think you might follow me. I don't know. Um, but yeah, that's a that was a kind of the the one of the good things about monarchy was the natural elites, but it got corrupted mm. by the idea of the fucking uh of right. the you know of the government in general It got right. you know, yeah. because the government's so, cancer.
2: <laughs> yeah, so Hoppe talks yeah a lot about natural elites because he's uh, he's saying that essentially what is just human nature is that hierarchy has to exist. You do need natural elites because people have different skill sets. Certain people are better at certain things than other people are. Like that's just a fact of human nature uh so in a situation where the government is not essentially artificially selecting the elites or as he would say unimpressive elites and things like that that in that like free market scenario and even in a monarchy that uh kind of more mimics that type of scenario you have more of the um uh, tendency towards uh people selecting natural elites like hey we know this person is actually good at this thing like, let's do this. And then I guess the other uh, aspect of that would be that the government actually will kind of uh, incentivize uh, the so called experts to become on their side. So then you have like guys like Fauci, where people are like, hey, they think that this guy is a natural elite. Like, this guy is, you know, he knows what he's talking about. He's a doctor, all of that. He's the expert, where, you know, the actuality is he is a liar who's gotten paid for by the government.
1: Mm-hmm. The natural outcome of the voluntary transactions between various private property owners is decidedly non-egalitarian, hierarchical, and elitist. As a result of widely diverse human talents in every society of any degree, a complexity of few individuals quickly acquire the status of an elite. Owing to superior achievements of wealth, wisdom, bravery, or a combination thereof, some individuals come to possess natural authority, and their opinions and judgments enjoy widespread respect. Moreover, because of selective mating and marriage and the laws of civil and genetic inheritance, the positions of natural authority are more likely than not passed on within a few noble families. It is to the heads of these families with long-established records of superior achievement, farsightness, and exemplary personal conduct that men turn with their conflicts and complaints against each other. And it is these very leaders of the natural elite who typically act as judges and peacemakers, often free of charge out of a sense of obligation required and expected of a person of authority or even out of a principal concern of civil justice as a, priv- a privately produced public good. Yeah, so uh, I don't know if there's too much to add to that. It's kind of points that he's made before, but
2: I guess basically in the monarchical scenario, I guess it's more likely that the king or the ruler will... Um, want to sort of exemplify why they are that sort of chosen elite. And they, you know, they're sort of, uh, they can be held more accountable than can uh, somebody in like a more democratic yeah. system, I suppose.
1: And to a point we were making earlier with the idea of like a, uh the welfare state and how it takes away individual responsibility with a lack of a government or even like a monarchy or a lesser government, you, especially with these types of entrepreneurs, people who rise to given scenarios because of their station, their abilities within whatever given Mm -hmm. field they're in. These are going to be people who are generally exceedingly wealthy or have skills that they can contribute. And they're going to likely, uh, you know, be typically of probably they are going to want to give back and they don't have this entity the government or it's there's less to be gained from this government in this situation that will be able to you know corrupt them in any way so the things that will be doing will be just you know because they have something to give they want to contribute they won't have a legacy to their name what have you you know so they're, 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 it's kind of that same concept we laid out earlier but uh, given to its logical degree when you get to people, of uh, that have, you know, more, you know, way more than they really need to be able to get by. And they they've gone to a point where they can provide their for their progeny and probably their progeny, you know, their progeny's progeny and et cetera, to the point where it's like, hey, you know, I'm just, you know, what am I gonna do with my wealth? I can, you know, I can make a good I can do something good for the world. And and then there's also, you know, uh to that point too, they don't have this corrupting idea. Because a lot of these people, even modern day society, a lot of these, you know, even these sort of natural elites, they probably, do, a lot of them have bought into the idea that the government's a good thing. So a lot of them do get involved in these government programs and et cetera, because they think, hey, I can help out. I can, you know, whatever it, whereas in a free society, they would be able to, you know, more effectively use their funds in a, you know, in, in a good way. So, yeah. All right. Um, In fact, the endogenous origin of a
2: monarchy, as opposed to its exogenous origin via conquest, can only be understood against the background of a prior order of natural elites. The small but decisive step in the transition to monarchical rule, the original sin, consisted precisely in the monopolization of the function of judge and peacemaker. The step was taken once a single member of the voluntarily acknowledged natural elite, the king, insisted against the opposition of other members of the social elite that all conflicts within a specified territory be brought before him and conflicting parties no longer choose any other judge or peacekeeper but him. From this moment on, law and law enforcement became more expensive. Instead of being offered free of charge for a voluntary payment, they were financed with the help of a compulsory tax. At the same time, the quality of law deteriorated. Instead of upholding the pre existing law and applying universal and immutable principles of justice, a monopolistic judge who did not have to fear losing clients as a result of being less than impartial in his judgments could successively alter the existing law to his own advantage.
1: That's a cool, uh, that's cool. He, he's making the point that essentially. With the the step towards monarchy, which you know he is making the point it's preferable to democracy, essentially mm-hmm. the monarch probably likely in some ways may even have been from me a, a you know what he thought was doing something good. he essentially mm-hmm. monopolized a lot of the functions of the natural elite and it became more consolidated within him. So you right. became more dependent on this one individual who likely, you know especially in the early days of the monarchies was li- more likely to be a natural elite and you know of some sort and now you're more relying on this one guy to be doing what you need him to be doing
2: right and he's referring to yeah basically like the rise of like a state as the original sin and he's essentially saying that like anarchy is the most preferable monarchy is a step backward from that and democracy is a step way backward from that is sort of how he uh it's a a long jump away from it (laughs) yeah right exactly um and and I don't know about like as far as like because I've read like uh, James uh, Scott's Against the Grain and whatever he talks about like that's yeah, first... a good book. Yeah, yeah, it is a good book. It'll definitely uh, change your way of thinking. Uh, even though he is a uh, leftist, uh, so I think there are certain yeah economic things that he doesn't get right. But uh, yeah, he says a...
1: that though. But some people, especially anarchists, sometimes use that left label in like an old timey way. You know, like yeah. I remember I remember reading Benjamin Tucker because uh, we reading the Anarchist Handbook, and a lot of the mm. shit he was describing, even though he got like his economics wrong. Yeah. Uh, he, he very much is like an anarchist and like, right. Really wasn't like saying aside from his like minutia of understanding of economics, uh, he really wasn't espousing much more different than we were at least from that one essay. I don't know much more of him aside from that. So. Right. Well, you know. yes. Yeah. Scott. Um, yeah. So, I mean, he
2: approaches it from more of like a, like a historian's perspective, I would say, where he talks a lot about the history of like when the first States were created and that, and, I don't think they were really like monarchies, but I don't really know because he doesn't necessarily get into like the type of government, but more like how they rose and like started functioning. So I don't know. It's kind of interesting because Hoppe here is kind of starting more like with the the monarchies, like maybe even in like the middle ages and things like that. But Scott goes all the way back to, like whatever like even like
1: 5000
2: BC probably
1: yeah which i really like feel like if you do read that book especially in modern days it kind of gives you an insight to you know where we are now and where we may be in the future as well i don't really have time to go in. i've actually talked about it uh, before so you know yeah but yeah but go on um where am i at here it was to um, a large extent the inflated price of justice
2: Yes, it was to a large extent the inflated price of justice and the perversions of ancient law by the kings which motivated the historical opposition to monarchy. However, confusion as to the causes of this phenomenon prevailed. There were those who recognized correctly that the problem lay with monopoly, not with elites or nobility. But they were far outnumbered by those who erroneously blamed it on the elitist characters of the rulers instead, and who accordingly strove to maintain the monopoly of law and law enforcement and merely replace the king and the visible royal pomp by the people and the presumed modesty and decency of the common man. Hence, the historic success—the uh, historic success of democracy. Yes, yeah, so that's uh, that's also an interesting paragraph there because yeah, a lot of it has to do with. Yeah. Like not recognizing correctly what the problem actually is. Um, and yeah, like he's saying that you do need those elites, like we were saying, and people that are, uh, I, I don't know if I'd necessarily call them the nobility, but maybe like the natural elites, like you do need people like that. But the problem is, uh, when people have like a monopoly on, uh, power, a monopoly on the use of force is when the problem arises.
1: Yep.
0: Uh,
2: yeah. And that, you know, when it, um, Become, you know, it comes to democracy. uh, He's saying it's a step backward. People actually saw that as a step forward because, hey, even people that like sort of knew, hey, this monarchy is a problem, they misidentified the problem and went a step backward instead of, um, you know, taking the right step. Yeah. Um, Okay. Ironically, the monarchy was then destroyed by the same social forces that kings had first stimulated when they began to exclude competing natural authorities from acting as judges. Yeah, so it's being destroyed by more territorial monopolism, basically, and mm-hmm. use of force. Um, in order to overcome their resistance, kings typically align themselves with the people, the common man. Appealing to the always popular sentiment of envy, kings promise the people cheaper and better justice in exchange and at the expense of taxing, cutting down to size their own betters, that is, the king's competitors. When the king's promises turned out to be empty – As was to be predicted, the same egalitarian sentiments which they had previously courted now focused and turned against them. After all, the king himself was a member of the nobility, and as a result of the exclusion of all other judges, his position had become only more elevated and elitist, and his conduct only more arrogant. Accordingly, it appeared only logical then that kings too should be brought down, and that the egalitarian policies which monarchs had initiated – he carried through to their ultimate conclusion,
1: the control of the judiciary by the common man. The funny thing is, as you're reading this, it reminded me of the Bible. Like I'm not religious. Most people who follow my channel know I'm an atheist, but I, I grew up in the church. I've read the Bible, and there is definitely a historical context to be taken. And. There definitely was, you know. I guess this might be something that speaks to a lot of people because a lot of people don't have a historical understanding of monarchs. I know, biblically speaking, the kings. There were multiple, uh, you know, times where the kings basically operated as a judge, and uh, I think even before the kings, they had judges of sorts. Uh, I believe, if I remember correctly, that's kind of what judges was about. Uh, although they yeah, were yeah. technically monarchs at that time, that was almost like semi. Like I'm sure, you know, popular. Liberty, if he's watching, he's probably nutting his pants. He always goes yeah. about how that was like yeah. one of the early anarchist sort of societies of sorts or private you know governments you know whatever he wants to call it well everybody uh, brings up ancient ireland yeah yeah. where
2: they kind of had like these roaming
1: judges and yeah but you you look at that and it was like yeah that was the original uh, thing they took on they took on the essentially the court system they were that system Mm -hmm. is that's kind of how it started which it makes sense because we even talk about from a private society you need those but the problem is once you consolidate it to one and then you give them the the force behind that it becomes an issue
2: Yeah. I I sort of like how he kind of like uh, talks about egalitarianism kind of throughout this whole thing as being contrary to liberty, which I think that's like one of kind of his main points. And Rothbard also has made that point, egalitarianism being a revolt against nature and things like that. Uh, It it requires massive force to even attempt to make people equal. Right. Like people are better than others at different things. That's just the way that it is. Everybody's an individual. So any attempt at egalitarianism is going to require force and going to be a step way in the wrong direction. Um, Predictably. Predictably as explained and illustrated in detail above the democratization of law and law enforcement, the substitution of the people for the King made matters only worse. However, the price of justice and peace has risen astronomically And all the while the quality of law has steadily deteriorated to the point where the I where the idea of a law as a body of universal and immutable principles of justice has almost disappeared from public opinion and has been replaced by the idea of law as legislation, government-made law. It's right, with it, you know, just the typical thing everybody say, Well, there should be a law against this, you know, just because I think that this is how it should be. You know, real quick,
1: I did want to add on my biblical point. Anyone who knows their Bible knows. That God explicitly, when they wanted to go to a uh, go to a king, God mm-hmm. was like this, basically like this is fucking dumb. And then they, yes. did it, but if you want to do it, whatever. And they end up doing it. And prior mm-hmm. to that, they had more of a judges system. So that, that's right. kind of a you know similar situation he's kind of describing here. So yeah, I think and, that, might, and, that may illustrate the concept a little bit better for a lot of people. Yeah, you know I, mean? I mean, yeah, I mean,
2: I, I, I <laughs> am a Christian. I had sort of like a Christian upbringing uh, in uh, like the New England uh, Congregational churches. Mm-hmm. Basically, I've family on my dad's side that is definitely very, uh, uh, religious. They are congregationalists. Uh, I went away from it, you know, in my rebellious teens, essentially, where I was basically like agnostic, maybe like an atheist, but not like militant about it in any way, really. And then I got back to Christianity uh, more recently and picked up the Bible again, started reading it again. And yes, I believe that, uh, looking at it again, like being a libertarian, being an ANCAP now I would say that yes, anarchy is, totally compatible with christianity and in the bible yes i believe it is it's like never actually people use you know like rome uh that verse in romans um whatever it is romans 11 maybe i forget what it is romans 13 13 i think uh where people are saying that there's a verse there that is explicitly saying that you should abide by like the king's law or whatever and i don't agree with that at all i think that it is essentially uh the bible is telling you that uh, God is your only king, and that that is the only uh, law yeah yeah. I, 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 on. I had
1: Jacob Daniel. It was one of my first episodes. I had Jacob Daniel or Jacob Winograd on. We talked about that, and uh, it is kind of funny if you read it in a certain sense, especially from our perspective. It's almost like God, uh, Jesus being a smartass because he was. I believe he was asked it by the Pharisees or something along those lines. Uh, somebody of that of that ilk, and he. Uh, it was like uh, we give unto Caesar is what's due to Caesar, but that like everyone goes, oh well, that means give it to the king. Like, no. Like, what is due to Caesar? Like, that yeah. is kind of like a trick question, like a trick, like there. like, well, what is due to Caesar? Is that really due to Caesar? Like, So it's almost like a smart ass answer, like in, in a way, yeah. like kind of a, if it was anything, it was a, you could almost look at it as a way to uh, exhibit Jesus's wisdom of getting out of a, uh, a tough situation and kind of like, you know, being like kind of a, a smart, quippy way to kind of be like, fuck you. Yeah. <laughs> Pretty much. Yeah. <laughs> like yeah. if you're reading it from our perspective. But even as me, I'm not I'm an atheist. I'm not a militant atheist by any means. But you can even look at that book from a um uh, from a Like I I just right now kind of looked at it from a historical perspective because there's definitely, you know, historical things in there and that they definitely, I I guarantee you that was to somewhat degree true what happened there. I guarantee you the original uh, Israelites probably did operate under a uh, a judge system of some sorts and then they became under a monarchy and then the monarchy eventually went to shit. And there's definitely, you know, lessons to be taken out of that as we are doing right now. But yeah, at the same time, that's at the same time, democracy has
2: succeeded where monarchy only made a modest beginning in the ultimate destruction of the natural elites. The fortunes of great families have dissipated and their tradition of culture and economic independence, intellectual farsightedness and moral and spiritual leadership has been forgotten. Rich men still exist today, but more frequently than not, they owe their fortune now directly or indirectly to the state. Hence, they are often more dependent on the state's continued favors than people of far lesser wealth. They are typically no longer the heads of long-established leading families, but nouveau riche, so the new riches. Their conduct is not marked by special virtue, dignity, or taste, but is a reflection of the same proletarian mass culture of present-orientedness, opportunism, and hedonism that the rich now share with everyone else. Consequently, their opinions carry no more weight in public opinion than anyone else's.
1: Yep. Yep. The artificial elite, the uh, corrupting mm-hmm. influence of the government. Right. I love um, that. It yeah, makes the point again
2: that they are, you know, at, they have high time preference just like, you know, the people do. They just create this atmosphere of high time preference, uh, you know, all across the board. And forget what the other point that I was going to make is. But yeah. basically, yeah, just something about like the, you know, once those like non-natural elites sort of get into um, – yeah into the system there uh you know then you have uh people that really don't uh deserve uh, that status uh yeah. in that position and, and yeah.
1: even even if they are a natural elite, the point he's making is they're, they're well a lot of their wealth is owed to the government and so it's like it was right. kind of the point i was making to you before like why do these natural elites not operate in the way we'd want to because a lot of people may present that as like a gotcha to like hoppers like yeah. Uh, you know, natural elite theory. It's like, well, no. Uh, the current natural elite and the artificial elite uh, both have this influence under them that kind yeah. of fucks their incentives and makes it so that you know they aren't really able to do as much, and they may even coming from a good you know type of you know what they think is doing good. Uh, You know, because they are fooled by the government. Just because they're a a natural elite doesn't mean they know everything about political theory or what have you. Right. So, like, they, you know, it's going to fuck with how they operate as well. So
2: Yeah. I just like how the, like, unimpressive elites, like, it's just becoming more and more transparent. Mm -hmm. We have people like Biden and Fetterman getting into, like, big positions of power. And it's like, well, like, how how is that deserved at all? Like, you have these people that can't form – a coherent sentence and they're going to be making decisions for like huge amounts of people for essentially for 300 million people. Like it's And then totally you contrast like a- against
1: somebody like a uh, Elon Musk, who I think is likely probably a natural lead. I don't know a ton about him, but he's also not able to do yeah. as much as he would like to probably be able to do because he has taken a lot of money from the government. He has to follow probably certain rules in accordance to the government, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. But even then, you know, you see some of the shit he's clearly trying to do. And I'm not saying he's perfect. I don't know. He also could be controlled opposition. There's always that. I don't fucking know. But that's yeah, kind of why I mean, like he, he,
2: he definitely is a natural elite to some extent because that's how he yeah. kind of rose in the first place. But then you have, like, the government kind of tries to, like, start controlling those particular types of people. But definitely he, like, knows what he's doing as, like, an entrepreneur. And he wouldn't have risen to the uh, status that he did like before, you know, the government got involved things like that. And before he yeah. became like as huge as he is now, he wouldn't have risen to that level if
1: he wasn't some form of elite in that respect. Yeah. All right. One more giant paragraph and we're out of here guys. Uh, hence when democratic rule has finally exhausted its legitimacy, the problem faced with it will be significantly more difficult than when Kings lost their legitimacy. Then it would have been sufficient to abolish the king's monopoly of law and law enforcement and replace it with a natural order of competing jurisdictions, because remnants of natural elites who could have taken on this task still existed. Now this will no longer suffice. If the monopoly of law and law enforcement of democratic governments is dissolved, there appears to be no other authority to whom one can turn for justice, and chaos would seem to be inevitable. Thus, in addition to advocating for the abdication of democracy, it is now of central strategic importance that at the same time ideological centralization or decentralizing or even successionist social forces. In other words, the tendency toward political centralization that has characterized the Western world for many centuries... First under monarchical rule and then under democratic auspices must be systematically reversed. Even if as a result of a secessionist tendency a new government, whether democratic or not should spring up, territorial smaller governments incre- and increased political competition will tend to encourage moderation as regards exploitation. In any case, only in small regions, communities, or districts will it be possible again for a few individuals based on the popular recognition of their economic independence. Outstanding professional achievement, morally impeccable personal life, and superior judgment and taste to rise the rank of natural, voluntarily acknowledged authorities and lend legitimacy to the idea of a natural order of competing judges and overlapping jurisdictions and anarchic private law society as the answer to monarchy and democracy.
2: Yeah, so that, um, some of the stuff that you just talked about there is like one of the points, uh, that I think like the classical liberal types and like loser brigade types and things like that, they really don't get and i think they're still kind of programmed to just oppose secession like secession is bad like maybe conflate it with slavery and things like that and they'll they'll try to make points like um you know anti-secessionist points by saying that like well you know if a fascist government rises up that's still anti-libertarian man it's like yeah we know that but as hop was saying here when you have a totally decentralized system you have secession and you create multiple smaller governments, that is going to be a better situation than when you have a centralized government because those governments actually have to start competing against each other and they start being able to get away with less. So yes, of course, it's not perfectly libertarian, but it is a step in the right direction.
1: In a more localized area, it's going to be more easier to identify natural elites, and it's also going to be harder for these smaller governments to be able to corrupt the, the natural elites that exist mm-hmm. and will also make the uh, artificial elites more apparent as artificial elites. Right. So, they can be held yeah. more
2: accountable. And then, you know, like le- like what we're seeing with the COVID shit, you have people can move out of a state and into another state where a lot of people move to Florida and we're telling you, hey, this is a government that we prefer over this other government because they're – cracking down on us way
1: less yeah all right man let's get the fuck out of here this is a long one uh, go ahead and drop your plugs. yeah this is
2: this is a meaty uh part of the chapter yeah there was a, a lot
1: photos, of so. a lot of interesting stuff in this one i think we're starting to get some of the juicy stuff we may we were doing like 15 pages up so we might have to go down to 10 if it stays this uh intriguing because um, i know the beginning for people who fall this long the beginning was a little bit of a slog i mean it was still interesting but now i think it's starting to get to the juicy shit yeah, maybe maybe because
2: of that we talked more too, but this chapter I think definitely had way fewer of the footnotes. This is a very footnote heavy. Well, well not um, even the
1: footnotes. I just feel like the yeah. stuff we covered was more conversation spurring. Yeah. Yeah, that yeah. 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 That's yeah. what I'm, yeah, I'm also
2: saying. Yeah, that, that yeah. is the case. Yeah. Oh, okay. All right. Yeah. Uh TPH underscore toad on Twitter. I do Tower Power Hour. Uh which is new and I think we're, we're starting to call it Tower Gang. Are we telling people that? I think, yeah.
1: Yeah, we're about to rebrand as Tower Gang. By the time this comes out, I think we'll be rebranded already. Yeah, so we, we have episode
2: to... 100 next week. Uh, we've been going on for almost two years at this point. And we hit episode 100 next week. Uh, we're going to do something for it. We're obviously going to be talking about the Kanye, Alex Jones stuff that happened today. And see if we get like a cool guest on or something like that. But we'll have a big uh, 100th episode next week. That's going to be me, Jose. uh Fat Dave, a.k.a. Cole, uh, Top Lobster, Clint from Liberty Lockdown, and maybe Reed Coverdale if he ever decides to show up again. We were on Wednesday nights at 9, 11 p.m. Eastern, and we did an episode last night, which I thought was pretty fun. It's always fun. Yeah, last yeah was night, fun. that was yeah. a fun episode, yeah. Yeah, I yeah. don't even remember what we talked about. We talked about no. shaving our armpits and shit. <laughs> yeah,
1: that no, was a fun one. That was definitely a fun one. We uh, uh, Just to get an idea of the show, if you don't watch Tower Power just to get an idea of what our show is, uh, for this next episode, the guest we're really trying to get, we're trying to get, we have our fans on the case. We have Clint, you know, our guy with a lot of pull, talking to big dogs, trying to make it happen. The, who we are really trying to hit for episode 100, at least not, or maybe later, we are really trying to get the father of that latest gay club shooter. Because yeah. if you haven't checked out his interviews, don't get me wrong, tragic event. Dude is like, He's insane. Yeah. He is an insane human being. And so that's the kind of show you're dealing with there. Uh, I don't know if we'll pull it off. Clint seems to think it's actually pretty likely. I'm more in like a, he said it's 60% likely. I'm like, I think it's like more like 30, 35. Yeah. So that's probably more accurate. Yeah, I think so. I think he's uh, overestimating his pull. He, we'll find he,
2: he's a, a former porn star and meth head. Basically,
1: yes. he's been on intervention, been on like three hundred porns. He had a son who ended up shooting a gay club. His first concern was that the kid was gay, and not so much that he killed people. <laughs> like, just a, just a like, truth is stranger than fiction type scenario. Yeah. Like, and what? last
2: time <laughs> on, on Tower of Power, we watched videos of him paying people to kick him in the balls. <laughs>
1: Yeah, it was fun stuff. Definitely, if you didn't check that show, just go check. T- definitely go check it out. If that's something that like sounds like something you'd be interested in, uh, if that's if you got offended by the idea that we would even talk to that person, probably not for you. We probably can get by with this show though. I don't. I only every now and then get a little bit spicy on this, uh, so I think it would be all right. Uh, just the right amount of spicy. But yeah, this was the No Way Jose show. You find me on YouTube. All the major odd podcasters, Odyssey as well. You can follow me on Twitter at Senior Jose Twenty Twenty. Oh, just sent a uh, super chat uh he said have a great one folks thanks for you showing up man here. appreciate it uh yeah i uh i also forgot to mention i have on tuesday this coming tuesday i forget the date uh what tuesday is but uh if you're watching this uh on the first it'll be coming up but if you're watching this when this goes public later it'll already be out so you can go watch it. i have patriot i have what's called the Six. four pony boys which is totally just a ripoff of reed's four horsemen but it's me it'll be me top lobster reed coverdale Clint Russell, and our guest will be Patriot J. Uh, and uh, it'll definitely be a fun one, especially in light of a lot of the Trump stuff. He's a big Trump guy. And then also the yay stuff. He's a big yay guy. It'll be it'll be a fun episode for sure. I definitely think you should check that out. Uh, and, yeah, if you want to support me, patreon.com, Snowy jose 2020 like, share, subscribe, comment, all that good stuff. With that, we are out. Appreciate it when it shows up. Please share these around, especially where this is such a long series. It'll definitely help if you guys push it around because uh, when you're dealing with, like, long series – The views really drop off once you get a few deep into it. Because these are it starts getting more and more niche the longer it goes on. So I appreciate
0: who shows up. And with that, we are out. Peace out.